All right, Bob, this is episode 50 of the Breaking Balls podcast. Not a lot of people thought we'd make it here. Just like I never thought we'd make it to the end of CODA, but here we are, pal. One episode for every overtime restart, it felt like today, Ad. Just kidding, there was only three, but Tyler Reddick held off the entire field each time. It was a lot to break down this weekend, and I'd say we kept Austin weird. So we might as well christen episode 50. Hit it, Dolly. Flags in the air. Boogity, boogity, boogity. Let's go racing, boys. All right, ladies and gentlemen. After a very, very, very long race today, over four hours, DirecTV tried to get me to turn the box off, but Tyler Reddick comes out of Coda victorious, and we're here for our 50th episode to break it all down. Bob, we kept Austin weird today, didn't we? We kept Austin weird this entire weekend, it felt like. Ad. Uh, you know, we got a lot to break down, obviously. A truck caught on fire that won, uh, you know, A.J. Allmendinger got flipped off by Sheldon Creed, but obviously we're not going to bury the lead. It's it's the Cup Series first and foremost here at Breaking Balls ad. But yeah, first of all, 50 episodes, just got to say. Uh, it, it's an absolute pleasure. I had the over-under at about 23, 24 and a half, so uh, cash the over. We've stuck it out, and uh, yeah, as Daryl said, let's go racing, my friend. Tyler Reddick cut off the entire field today, didn't he? Yeah, 100%. Luckily... A lot of that came in stage three, Bob. So like you said, we don't like to bury the lead here. So we're going to take you right to where the action was in this race. And it looked like we were shaping up for a really good finish, Bob. About 12 laps to go. Um, it, you know, the Trackhouse boys had just kind of decided to make their move past William Byron. We had all sorts of questions as to whether or not Tyler Reddick was going to be able to hold off both drivers coming for him. But a caution came out, Bob, courtesy of Brad Keselowski. Not what we wanted to see. I think the broadcast booth did a good job of summing it up, but obviously you hate to see the yellow flag come out there. You even heard Clint Boyer in a rare candid moment where he admitted, I usually root for the cautions this late, but I got to tell you all, I'm, I'm disappointed. And, um, you know, obviously there was multiple restart attempts. When you look at Tyreta, he was the class of the field today. I, you know, I think if you looked at him in qualifying and in practice yesterday on Saturday, I mean, he was, you know, half a second at least clear of the field when it came to their run. So, I mean, it wasn't like this was a shock, but multiple guys through the through the uh, through the ball and chain. It felt like Adam through the through the full court press there in overtime. You had Kyle Busch, Alex Bowman, Ross Chastain fought his way back over to the field after a late wreck. But you know, obviously, it felt like William Byron was the guy to watch there. Uh, the 24 and the it still feels weird to say the 45 of Tyler Reddick, but uh, the 24 and the 45. It felt like. You know, they were the class of the field all day. felt like when they had clean air, they were the, the, the pace of the field there. Um, clean racing, too. Got to gotta tell you, um, in Stage 3 especially, they were side-to-side, door-to-door. Great passing, great racing um, through the S's, through the, the back stretch in, in, in Coda. And, I mean, at, at the end of the day, Byron kind of got swallowed up toward the, the second or third restart there, and it was kind of Tyler Reddick holding off multiple guys there. But, I mean, at the end of the day, I think it shows that they were head and shoulders the the car to beat today. A hundred percent. I think if you were surprised at this performance from the 45 today, you just weren't watching close enough because they were dominant qualifying. They had speed all day. Um, I think Tyler Reddick just did a wonderful job driving the car today. There was multiple occasions where, you know, William Byron put himself in some really good spots. Um, 
Obviously, you know, not when it mattered because I think he chose so wrong on that last restart. I mean, it, it, there was no reason for him to choose the outside, but we can nitpick that a little bit later. You know, Bob, I, I just think Reddick truly deserved this. We talked a little bit about this, but, you know, last year he really deserved to win this race, but obviously goes through turn one, gets punted, and it just seemed like he was almost driving with a fourth field of karma this year because at the end of the day, he deserved this win. He deserved it last year, and he deserved it this year. I just feel really good for him and Kurt Busch. I mean, obviously, to get that in the broadcast, that type of emotion, you know, we don't love, I, I have been guilty of saying I don't love when team owners and stuff are in the box, but I, I think Kurt Busch was about as close as you can get to where I still love it because to hear the emotion in his voice is, you know, to watch Tyler Reddick and he could just kept saying, that's my boy, that's my boy. And, you know, it's like, it, it's just, it was really cool to see because that's a guy who obviously had his career kind of cut short in a way that you never really want to have anybody go through, especially Kurt Busch. So really just a cool, cool show of emotion today, Bob. Definitely. And you think of that 2311 team, they expanded that second car with Kurt Busch in mind to be there for at least two years. This was supposed to be his second year there. So he feels like that's kind of his team, and you definitely love to see the emotion there. I got to be honest, when they were lining up for the restart um, in one of the overtimes, he, he said to the broadcast, he said, you know, I, I'm i not shy about who I'm rooting for here. And, and then he said it again, the second restart, and I realized, well, I thought he was talking about Tyler Reddick in the 45, but then his brother Kurt or Kyle is right behind him. So maybe it wasn't as obvious to me who he was rooting for until, you know, obviously he showed that emotion there. But, you know, add... You did mention Reddick being deserving. A lot of times you don't see the most deserving car win, especially when you get three overtime restarts at a, a chaotic turn, a chaotic turn one um, at Code. I mean, you know, really credit to Tyler Reddick because this is his fourth career win, three uh, road course wins. Now it's not like he hasn't had speed at these road courses. This isn't a shock to anyone, um, but I do have to admit it is it is kind of interesting to see it was the same faces from last year, kind of in that bunch, like you said when he got punted out early. And I think what was most telling, Bob, was in the interview post-race with Kyle Busch, he even said, you know, this eight car had a really good road course package that I just kind of walked into, and I just kind of hung on the coattails of Tyler Reddick's success a little bit. He said, obviously, we've still got a little bit of work to do because it didn't finish first. But, I mean, it just goes to show you what we were so – I've been so um, adamant about how much – Kyle Busch has affected RCR to this point, but let's not forget how much Tyler Reddick is bringing to the table here, especially to kind of help out the road coursing stuff. I I just think that, you know, I I, just, I don't know. I just think that there's a lot there's a lot to go around, and Tyler Reddick is one of those young drivers that I'm really excited to see them kind of build around in the future. Yeah, and like I just wanted to finish up what I was saying there, where it was the same field as last year though, Dan. Like you said, where Tyler Reddick was kind of the class of the field going into that last restart. Gets punted out of the way, but then you look at the cars that were, you know, in the top five to end today. Alex Bowman, Ross Chastain, obviously Tyrell Reddick was in there. It's the same as last year. It was, a, it was the the field that had that chaotic ending there. Obviously, A.J. Allmendinger wasn't there at the end, but he did have speed there before he had to go to the garage in stage two. But he had a fast car, too. It felt like, you know, with the same winners in Xfinity and trucks last year, too, it felt like Coda kind of was a repeat of itself a little bit from last year. Just kind of what your thoughts on that, Ad? You know, same kind of people from last year. Yeah, I agree, Bob. And, you know, I think it was the wise philosopher, um, I believe his name is the Macho Man Randy Savage, who once said, The cream rises to the top, Bobby Perry. And I think that's what we had at Coda. I mean, the cream rises. I think that right now, 
there's a short list of guys that you watch every single time you go to a road course. I think Tyler Reddick's on that list. AJ Allmendinger's obviously on that list. I think Kyle Larson's on that list. There's there's just certain guys that when you go to road courses, you you know they're going to bring their A game. So really no surprise once you saw Tyler Reddick in qualifying that he was going to have a good chance at it. Just happy to see that they could convert. Because like you said, overtime gets really unpredictable. However, Bob... I just want to transition really quickly because obviously didn't necessarily shake out for them, but the team that we thought was going to have the best chance to win the race before that first caution flag came out with 12 left, shout out to Trackhouse Racing, man, because they've really been able to put some stuff together here at Coda. I, any thoughts on that, Bob? Yeah, um, you know, we kind of touched on it a little bit, but I want to go a little bit more in depth on, you know, like I said, we usually look for those cautions late, uh, but it was shaping up to be a great kind of four Four-headed race there with, you know, 12-11 to go there. Obviously, you had the track house bunch of Suarez and Chastain coming on late there uh, because Tyler Reddick and, and William Byron, who, like I said earlier, they were the two probably strongest cars in the field, they kind of were having to nurse the, the fuel mileage a little bit there. And it kind of felt like an old-school NASCAR race where, you know, you had to not only worry about your lap times and worry about your tires, but... Your fuel was a big thing, and it wasn't like you were going to have a timely caution of the stage breaks. You know, obviously with no stage breaks this, uh, you know, road course, and this was the first time we've seen, it, I think, seven years. Ad, we'll talk about it here in a second, but it really did change kind of how the, the game plan worked for these road courses. And obviously, we had kind of pure racing with those four cars there for uh, about two laps there before that Brad Keselowski caution comes out, and you know, who who knows what would have happened there? I'm sure Ross Chastain would have taken somebody out there if I know uh, the universe, but it was shaping up to be good. And I, I know you were kind of looking forward to it too. I was curious what, uh, you know, what you were thinking about kind of old school racing. It felt like there at the road course. Yeah. Uh, just to not have the stage breaks. Um, it, it just felt less artificial. I think there's something about NASCAR recently with some of the stage breaks that just, it doesn't feel like it always has. And I think more often than most, you see that when there's stage breaks and stuff like that, that it gives cars that don't necessarily have the most performance the chance to win. And of course that, you know, that does kind of even itself out because there are drivers who kind of overperform and stuff like that. But to just see a full team effort finally pay off and to let it pay off without the stage breaks, I, I just think it made all the difference in the world. It really did have an old school feel. It, it was different, Bob, because... You know, every time you go to Coda, I think this race is is different from any other one on the on the schedule. I mean, look at the sponsors that show up to this one. I think you pointed that out to me earlier. It's just it's such a different feel, Bob. And and the, it, you know, you get some of the bigger names to be involved with the pre race stuff. I mean, I don't know. This race felt different for a lot of reasons. I think it's one of the one of the times where NASCAR kind of shines through culturally, which I you know is becoming more and more rare. So it was good that they were able to put on a good race here at Coda. But I don't know, man. I it just the more you think about it, the more this race really just did. It it had everything you wanted, and I think a big part of that was the not stopping to let the strategy play out, and you got to understand a side of this sport that we don't often see when they have to stop for the stage breaks. Yeah, and I'm not for it on ovals right now, but I think with the you know uniqueness of the road courses and the stage cautions, where you had to basically choose, well, am I going to go for the points and you know long-term playoff points here? Am I going to go for the win here? And you had great cars kind of having to choose that, and it would split up the strategy. When you go and you have it to where it's natural, 
you just keep racing as the stage rolls on. It really works because you saw, uh, you know, stage one, or it was, I believe stage one, it was either stage one or stage two, and first lap going back to green, which would never happen in today's NASCAR nowadays, where that would be another two or three or four laps under caution, another 20 minutes probably in the broadcast window. You got to have that natural progression of a race there. And I mean, add again, we, we don't know what's going to happen with those four cars with that caution doesn't come out, but it just felt like, again, pure NASCAR road racing. And I, you know, nobody was taking each other out. It just, I loved it. It, it felt, it felt like something old school there. And you, you mentioned, you know, you've got all the, the excitement of, of Coda and all that. Obviously you're at a track with F1, the only car track that you share with F1 on the calendar. So you've got to, you know, obviously ride the momentum that F1's brought in. You've got Gunther Steiner in the booth you got multiple F1 drivers in the field. NASCAR's trying to, you know, capture that momentum and just, you know, ride on a little bit there. Yeah, and, I mean, Kimi Raikkonen, even for one of those late restarts, because of the way the strategy shook out, he was in the top five. Uh, obviously ended up falling out of there pretty quickly once everything shook out. But, you know, I, I think it, it, they did a good job today. I think NASCAR and Fox especially, they did a really good job of kind of leaning into a little bit of the F1 flair that kind of comes with being at Coda and the one track that you do share with F1, but still showcasing what makes the sport great. And I think, you know, turn one at Coda for NASCAR is one of those places where you know that there's going to be, there's never going to be a ticket available. It's always going to be sold out because you know there's going to be awesome action. And there's just so, there's so many different parts of this track that breed action for NASCAR for different reasons than they do in F1. And I think it just showcases the versatility of the track. And I think Chase Elliott brought it up that, you know, this track changes so often and the tire wear is so unique because they can kind of, you know, maybe repave one part of the track and then not repave parts of the other. And just the way that this track has has aged and kind of come of age here, it just seems to be one of these places that is hopefully going to produce good road racing for NASCAR for years to come, and I just think that eliminating the stages, Bob, that really really was kind of the cherry on top of a really good day at racing. Yeah, and this is such a unique track. There's no reason for NASCAR not to have great racing that we've seen the last two years where you've got you know multiple runoff areas so you can use as much of the track as you need. Obviously, that turn one is chaotic. Um, and again, getting rid of the stages, I think, was, like you said, kind of the, the next step toward making that better. Um, I will ask you this, Bob, because obviously one one thing that I noticed and kind of the first guy that got penalized for it was Joey Logano and then numerous others thereafter was kind of cutting it in the S's. And obviously, you know, no, that's kind of the only track limit we've got at Coda for NASCAR is cutting those S's. But I think what bothered me about it was the way that Joey Logano was going about it. It was kind of it seemed as if it was more of a racing situation. I understand kind of the textbook, you know, the rule where if you get inside of it, obviously you call it that's what it is and you call it consistently, but I don't know. I kind of I kind of almost wish that they wouldn't have they don't even have those limits there. I just think that it would kind of keep the racing as well as well as it had gone today in my opinion. I just I don't know. I I don't like little ticky-tack penalties for stuff like that, like basically saying, oh, we're going to give you the entire track to race, except in this one part. I don't know. felt weird to me. It, I get it. It's it's a slippery slope if you give them, you know, little spots like that. That would, I, It's somebody that gets paid more than me to, to make that call, so uh, who am I to, to argue it one way or the other? But, you know, did want to mention, again, the no stage breaks. It, it made things flow smoother because, let's be honest, your ad, first, you know, 12, 
13 laps and a 15 stage first lap or a, a first stage uh, it was 15 laps in the first stage there we go we, we took a minute there um you know, 12 of those are probably under caution i'd say it was a very clunky start to the race there obviously some people didn't even get a full lap in obviously jimmy johnson was one of those casualties in the early early calamity um just you know felt like it was i'll be honest here i was nervous about this race from the first 10 15 laps i thought this was gonna be kind of a shit show ad because there was no no real rhythm to the race we were under yellow we were under cautions it felt like we were just interviewing people just because we were filling time there was a lot to kind of go over here in the first 15 20 laps here i'd say yeah, stage one of this race felt a lot like when you first take the bumpers off for the first time you go bowling. And, like, you know, your friend's birthday parties for a long time. You start showing up. Parents make sure you get the bumpers. But then, I don't know, right around 12, 13, the cutoff gets made. You don't start. You don't use bumpers anymore. And it kind of felt that way. We were taking the stage breaks off, and I felt like, oh, my gosh, here we go. Calamity's about to ensue. There's no rhythm. Nobody's going to know what the hap- what's going to happen. Ty Dillon just almost murdered Jimmy Johnson for some reason. What the heck is going on on my TV screen? <laughs> Luckily, it sorted itself out, Bob, because I thought that NASCAR was going to basically be able to, to anytime somebody said, hey, we, you know, we want to try racing without stage breaks. Let's get rid of stage breaks. I was terrified that NASCAR was just going to have to put on this race and just say, watch what happens when we did. And luckily, that didn't happen and it sorted itself out. But you're 100% right, Bob. Not a lot of rhythm early, to say the least. No, it, we kind of started in chaos, ended in chaos, and somewhere in between there was a road course race mixed in there. Um, you know, obviously, the Jimmy Johnson thing was kind of disappointing, to say the least, just because... You've hyped him as one of these guys that's come in with Kimi Raikkonen, Jensen Button. Even Jordan Taylor had some hype now after his great qualifying performance. And then Jimmy makes it, you know, a couple of turns in. And, you know, obviously doesn't make the DNF clock. It is what it is with Ty Dillon. I know you've had some some keen, keen thoughts on that, though, for sure. I don't know, Bob. I'm just sick of it because, you know, Ty Dillon's one of these guys that there is so much talent in racing right now, and especially in, in the coming up the pike right now that the fact that we could just have a guy who's essentially rolling around off of his, almost his brother's accomplishments at this point. I don't even know. I mean, I don't necessarily know what anybody sees in Ty Dillon. I mean, it, he, he's the, he's the second, I mean, he's the second most recognizable duo of probably the, maybe not even a top 10 brother duo in NASCAR all time. And I don't know. It's the equivalent of Brett Gretzky out there. I, I get it. But I just want to see someone with a little bit more talent that's in that seat. And these, you know, there's not that many cup seats. Let's face facts. And there's too few. I think there are too few cup seats for someone like Ty Dillon who consistently does stuff like that and can't find a way to get his car, you know, through a race. I think, I, I think he's probably DNF'd half the races this season. And, I don't know, Bob. It, it just pissed me off because he almost took Jimmy Johnson from Legacy MC to Legacy RIP. I thought he was going to kill him there when he hit him. I, I genuinely did not know what was going to happen. Really glad to see that old Jimmy was, you know, able to take the old door hit. Remind him what it feels like to, you know, kind of be back. And hopefully he comes goes back into Chicago or whatever he races next and is able to put on a little bit better of a showing. So. Well, this is a bad time to announce Ty Dillon will actually be our guest next week. So that's a, that's a great, great start to the week for us. Um, yeah, no, it, it's it's a shame. You obviously, you, you push Jimmy and you know, 
the sponsorship and just having him out there half a lap. It's just, it's a shame for everyone. Um, obviously, there was a you know, clunky everywhere to start those first couple laps. Uh, there was another incident, obviously, add the, the Larson Bubba Hamlin thing. I, I, don't, I don't even know what the hell really happened there. If you, you, you got anything? I mean, I explain it to me, please. I don't understand. Okay. Yeah. So I guess. Um... Bubba's Bubba's controller disconnected. What I'm assu- I'm assuming, because if the brakes didn't go out, he certainly forgot to hit him. Because I, well, I mean that was a pretty that was a pretty terrifying hit. He said that the that uh, some some oil line or something had cut, so he didn't have power. He couldn't brake there. Um, you know, obviously it reminded me. I even texted you when it happened, kind of a Kyle Larson last year into Ty Dillon at the Indy Road Course where. You had that moment where he just kind of slammed out of nowhere into him, full send into turn one. Nobody ever, by the way, from Hendrick said what happened there. They never said if it was a Kyle Larson problem or if it was a mechanic. Nobody's ever come out and said that, by the way. And we've just kind of swept that under the rug. NASCAR and Hendrick, I have not forgotten if Kyle Larson tried to kill Ty Dillon or if your car tried to. I don't know. Pepperidge Farms remembers. Know. Just pointing that out there. But, um, you know, obviously you had that situation then where – both cars are trying to limp around. Uh, Bubba tries to get to the garage. Denny Hamlin swerves and spins Kyle Larson out. Chaos reigns once supreme again. Um, and then you have Bubba in the, the interview then add. Just, you know, I, I've got some thoughts there, but, you know, go ahead, please. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, the Denny Hamlin thing, I, I, somehow we're not talking. I don't, I don't think anyone really talked about that as much as I think we should be. I mean, I really don't understand why why Denny kind of got into to Kyle Larson there. I don't know if, you know, I think obviously Kyle Larson comes across his nose maybe a little little too hard, but what, I, I don't know. I think, I think Larson's trying to get to the pits there. I think tr- Larson yeah. was trying to get to the pits there. Which kind of is, that's my thing, is that it's like, okay, like, I guess Denny doesn't know that, but at the same time, like, why, you're under caution, right? I mean, they, did they, they threw a caution, or no? No, that no, that oh, no, was the did. caution was Larson getting that, spun. Dude, to see this was this was such a calamity that in my head I didn't even realize when they dropped the yellow. So like mm-hmm. that was the thing was I okay, so this makes a lot more sense to me now that Denny was actually okay, that's dumb. Yes, Denny was racing. Okay, and then Kyle goes across his nose. One thing leads to another. Adam looks like an idiot on his own podcast, and we move on quickly to avoid it. And this was talking NASCAR. But yeah, you know, obviously they get Bubba Wallace in the uh the you know garage afterwards the paddock i'm sorry at coda it's a paddock at that track just for the record um you you get bubble obviously frustrated two back-to-back weeks where he's one of the first cars out he says you know rookie mistakes basically i'm in my sixth year at the cup you know i gotta be better than that it's frustrating mentally i'm paraphrasing all this obviously but he said you know somebody needs to replace me at this point and you know i get the frustration there obviously two weeks back-to-back where you probably got a decent car as far as speed-wise and, you know, throw it away in the first, you know, 5%, 10% of the race there. I totally understand the frustration ad, but when this guy is, you know, a face of the sport, you know, got a lot of sponsorship dollars behind him, man, you know, I, I understand he's he's an emotional driver, but, you know, to, to, to throw that out there like that, you know, that, it just it doesn't do anyone any good there, whether it's yourself, whether it's the broadcast, the, the team, it gives your haters more gasoline. It just... It doesn't. It doesn't help the scene for for Bubba. You know, he's he's taken so many great strides, especially the last year and a half or two years with 2311. That you, know, you don't want to see uh, 
the the head be the reason that uh, you know he doesn't succeed and uh, just you know it, it, it's one of those things where you see him kind of do it every once in a while it rears its ugly head. Obviously the the Kansas race with Larson last year immediately comes to mind, but it's just you know as somebody that wants to see him succeed, it is frustrating to watch him be kind of his own worst enemy. Yeah, um, you know it's one of these things that. Uh, on one hand, I'm very thankful, you know, somebody who kind of is fiery like that and has a little bit of that hot-headedness, you know, I, I get it. And, and and I think that's what always makes it hard when I watch Bubba do things like this is, like, I, I compete like that and I understand it. But at the same time, it, you got to be media trained enough to know when to bite your tongue and to just weave your intrusive thoughts and the things that are going on in your head out of it. Because, look, man, what good does it say for you to go on television and say, somebody needs to replace me? Because all that's going to do is give bulletin board material for someone to actually go out there and do it. And even if your boss wasn't thinking about it, if he's going to read about it for the next few days, it's just nothing you need to put into existence, nothing you need to put in the universe. I mean, yeah, obviously, a disappointing few weeks, a disappointing year for Toyota as a whole, but winning fixes everything. And 2311 got into the winner's circle this, you know, this week, you know, I think hopefully these comments kind of get swept under the rug accordingly um, because, you know, I think that will be more of the talk at 2311 this week. But you, you certainly would like to see Bubba have a little bit more restraint there to know that it's like, look, man, there's it doesn't do you any good. It doesn't do your team any good. It doesn't do anybody who worked on your car any good. Like, there's really no reason for you to go out and say that. No, and, you know, he was running top 10 laps in practice and qualifying at, at times where you know, a guy who's not historically a road course racer is in a decent card this weekend. You know, obviously his teammate won the damn race. So, you know, he's in good equipment. There, there's going to be weekends where this happens. You know, you're, you're racing against at a minimum 36 other guys every week. You're not going to, you're not going to have success you know, consistently. And, you know, you've got to channel that emotion into something else. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to be one to tell him how to do it, but you know, you, you're going to eat yourself alive if you if you treat yourself as your worst critic, like Bubba Wallace does. And he, as somebody who's already got that pressure of what you know he means to the sport, he, he, you just you don't want to see him add to that that list by you know just piling on himself. No, I, I think we touched on it when I was talking about Ty Dillon a little bit earlier. Is that look, there are not that many cup seats. I mean, for you know, consistently, you know. There's just not that many seats to go around, not that much sponsorship money to go around. So when you're there, don't don't even joke that you're willing to throw it away. I think that's kind of the moral of the story with Bubba, in my opinion. It's just I, I don't know. I get it. I get it. But would love to. Yeah. Beats well, beats me, yeah. Bob. I, I just are we gonna where well, are we we'll transition to happier about? thoughts? Let's let's let's. It was a good weekend here. Let's transition to some happier thoughts here because you know obviously it was a clunky start to the race. It was a clunky start to the broadcast as well. But you know obviously they hyped a lot of stuff going in that this was not going to be your normal Fox race weekend. Obviously you've got Kurt Busch in the booth, Gunther Steiner, the Haas F1 principal in the booth. So they're they're really trying to bank in that that F1 momentum in U, U.S. especially. But um, you got Chase Elliott zooming in from i guess colorado because he's still stuck on the mountain up there where his leg snapped uh, I, not a doctor here i don't know ad but anyway you know they they pumped a lot into this broadcast for the start i'm not gonna lie to you felt like there was a lot going on too many cooks in the kitchen here but hand up 
I think they kind of did figure it out as the race figured itself out, to be honest with you. They didn't talk over each other, and they kind of had a nice little rhythm to it. Even Clint Boyer pitching it to, to you know, Chase Elliott. It, Fox had some synergy. Am I, am I wrong? I, I don't think you're wrong, Bob. I, I am often critical of the broadcast. Crazy. Um, I didn't think that this was going to go well. I'm not going to lie. I thought that I was watching a monkey with a hand grenade that I didn't necessarily understand what was going to happen, but I did know that it was not going to be very good. And ultimately, it it was clunky at the beginning. They were feeling each other out. Nobody understood what the heck was going on with Gunther's accent. I didn't know if Kurt Busch was Clint Boyer. I didn't know if Clint Boyer was Kurt Busch for a minute. But eventually, we all settled down. We all figured it out. Larry Mack explained to me a if, little if, bit of fuel strategy. If you if you want to know but the difference between Kurt Busch and Clint Boyer, just the one that's louder is probably Clint Boyer. Anyway, you know, it eventually <laughs> did turn out. And, and somehow, some way, Fox threw enough darts at the dartboard that a few of them landed in that, you know, in the inner ring there and and they scored some points today, man. I, I really think they did a good job at this broadcast, somehow, some way. It, again, you want the broadcast not every week, obviously, to have this feel, but you know, every few weeks you've got to have a bigger broadcast feel. You've got to have something to have you come back every week instead of just, you know, hey, it's the same old, same old next week. That's why I do like having the Fox broadcast booth bring in different people every other week or something like that. But obviously. You know, to road course, you have to have a, a different flavor on it. And I, I do love the, the Gunther part. I, that was just, you know, really, really adds to it there for me, Ad. Well, it, it was so fun to have somebody who has such an expertise in racing, but such a different discipline of racing. Because anytime you can get guys to kind of draw parallels from F1 into NASCAR, it kind of helps kind of the fan bases go back and forth. And who better to do it than... You know, then a team principle. I mean, if anybody's going to be able to look to look at what is going on and kind of draw parallels, it's you know someone who sits in that position. So, and he also, I, I don't know if you heard in the broadcast, he started the Red Bull NASCAR team too when he was working with Red Bull. They sent him to America originally to help start the NASCAR program that you know ended after a few years. But you know that's the original reason he ended up at Haas was because. He was in America working with the NASCAR Red Bull program. So it's not like this man is 4-2 and two NASCAR and he's just you know an F1 guy and they brought him in just to ride the coattails. No, the man knows NASCAR. Maybe not recently, mm-hmm. but he knows and has been around the sport and, and you know, helped run a team. So uh, that insight's very valuable. He truly was the one guy that you could put in this broadcast booth as kind of the F1 liaison that makes the most sense. Because other than having Gene Haas sit in the booth who owns teams in both – that's probably as close as you're going to get to, you know, to having someone who is well-equipped, especially to broadcast a race like that. But, man, I, I think we touched on it early, Bob, but just the rare chance to hear kind of that, that emotion from Kurt Busch and stuff during the broadcast. I, there was not an I, – I don't think there's enough positive things I can say about that. And, you know, it, it, all credit to Kurt Busch for just being able to kind of – you know, somehow, some way, let it out a little bit, man. It, it, it just felt good that we kind of got to see a little bit of a happier ending for Kurt Busch on TV. Definitely, especially with the the way he went out, like you said, just, uh, you know, some, some nice, nice kind of, you know, moment just in the universe for Kurt Busch. And obviously, you know, we, we touched on it at the very beginning. Chase Elliott was also on this broadcast, Ad. He zoomed in from Colorado. 
I got to tell you, this is the most I've ever heard Chase Elliott talk. And originally when they brought him in at first and they kind of had him in, they said, okay, you know, we'll come back to you later. I thought that would be it, first of all. But second, that was the most personality I've heard from him, too. He's very reserved, usually doesn't give much to the camera. Obviously, he's a very private individual. He likes to say that, you know, when he's not the racetrack. He likes to do his own thing, doesn't do the TV and marketing. And you know, NASCAR's most popular driver without really trying. It's kind of impressive, but. Today, as somebody who's not a big Chase Elliott fan, I got to say, I was impressed with him in the booth, and I was impressed with the personality he showed that I guess maybe he just doesn't want to show the camera sometimes, but I guess it's actually there. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. You and I were kind of speculating because, you know, the text messages back and forth, we were shocked at how well he was doing um, on the broadcast team. He was providing such great insight on what could be going through drivers' minds. And obviously, I, you know, ripped him off and talked about what he was saying with the different, you know, the different uh, ages of asphalt on road courses and how much little details like that matter. And, you know, I, I don't know, Bob, we, we kind of speculated that maybe he shows he just is one of those guys who when you get him more in a one-on-one setting or if you meet him in the garage or you get a VIP fan experience or something like that, it seems as if he's leaving a lasting impression on people. And I was just thankful that he was able to, just for today, kind of come back to the sport, let everybody know he's doing okay, rehabbing and stuff like that, and also really elevating the fan experience by providing us insight that otherwise we would have never gotten. So 100%, hats off to Chase Elliott. I'm not sure if he was comfortable doing it because obviously, you know, like you said, more of a private reserved guy, but really thankful that he, he actually took the time to go about it and do it because it really elevated the broadcast. And it's nice having a fresh perspective. You know, we talk about, you know, people that have been in that seat before, whether it's uh, obviously Boyer or, you know, even Gunther that's been in the garage before. Chase Elliott was literally in this car weeks ago, uh, you know, won the championship in 2020 three straight final four appearances. It's not like this man is, is, you know, just somebody that is great as a race car driver, most popular guy in the, in the, in the sport for a reason. Obviously it, it's huge for Fox to bring him back just to, you know, for fans that are watching the races just for Chase Elliott, especially down in Dawsonville, down in the pool hall. It's it, there are people out there that are watching just for one driver. They bring those fans back too. They're watching just for Chase. So, you know, it's a win-win for everyone involved. It gets Chase Elliott involved in the sport that, you know, it's got to be lonely the last few weeks. You you love what you do and to, to watch the sport move on. It's got to be tough for him. So a little bit of normalcy, not, you know, completely, but just to be involved. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, was kind of impressed with the Fox broadcast overall. Did I miss anything? Is there anything else that, you know, before we get into kind of this general running order here? Uh, no, I mean, obviously the, the broadcast, I think, did an ample job of covering the Cody Ware self-spinner that we usually get once every two weeks <laughs> or so. So that, that, was, that was great to get the Cody Ware coverage that the Lord, the Lord knows that we need. So that felt good. Um, obviously, you know, anytime the road course ringers, as we call them all day, show up, it's kind of fun. Um, so I don't know, Bob, as, as far as road course ringers go, obviously, you know, we love Kimmy. Connor Daly didn't necessarily get to finish the race, but I don't know, Bob, did anybody kind of stand out? Yeah. I mean, obviously Jordan Taylor's speed was, was impressive, especially in qualifying. I will say, obviously I'm looking at the order right now, all the ringers except for Jensen button button finished outside the top 25 uh, button actually finished 18th. So he was the fastest of the ringers, but it, Again, what jumps out to me out of these four guys, and only three of them, because Connor Daly ended up behind the behind the wall, was that you know they were in 
the top 15, the top 20, especially toward the end of the race. But it was these restarts that really swallowed them up. These guys are so aggressive at the restarts. They get chewed up. They get spit out. Kimi Räikkönen, like you said, was fourth to start uh, one of the, the overtimes. I think the next one he was ninth. And then you blinked, he was 17th. He ended up 29th. You know, second to last car off the lead lap. At this rate, it's just, you know, one of those things where these guys aren't used to these chaotic restarts. In F1 and IndyCar, you can't beat and bang. And I, that's no, where you can it, rely on that. 100%, Bob. It's one of those things where it's like as as much as you can understand the track, really understand, you know, how to get around it, the best racing line, stuff like that, nothing is ever really going to prepare you for just getting moved at 60 miles an hour and just having to, you know, figure out how to adjust that line as you're, you know, getting shoved in one direction, your tires are spinning, you got no clue what to do, there's, you know, you're in the middle of a of three wide and you really are at the mercy of all these other cars and I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to kind of teach that positioning um, that, you know, guys like Kyle Busch. I think Kyle Busch showed that off today. The most like most evident, to be honest, when William Byron was originally making that pick and he went outside and Kyle Busch immediately was like, I'm picking, you know, I'm going behind the leader. And even when he was in second place and got the choose, he stuck behind that leader strictly because of the track positioning. And ultimately it worked out for his finish. But, Bob, you know, I'll say this. A better day for Toyota because Martin Truex Jr. was running up towards the front until, you know, obviously kind of got dumped at the end there. Ty Gibbs found his way, kind of stumbled into a top 10 finish. And obviously with Tyler Reddick, I mean, winning fixes everything. So hopefully this is a sign of things to come for Toyota. Yeah, and you had Denny Hamlin at times kind of running the top 15. Chris Bell obviously was running top five before he got spun in one of the restarts, ultimately wrecked out there. Um, I think in the third or second overtime finish. But, you know, just looking at the kind of the, the, the wrap-up here, Ad, uh, a couple of things, obviously, that jumps out. A couple of guys that are starting to become road course kind of, you know, not going to say aces, but you're seeing them consistently in the top ten. Daniel Suarez was there for a lot of the day-to-day, obviously, with Trackhouse. But a name that I want to give some credit to, Chris Buescher and Ricky Stenhouse both. Buescher, obviously, you know, was right on the heels for Suarez at Sonoma last year couple of road courses now where he's performed well and Ricky Stenhouse not a guy you really expect to be in that top 10 was in contention all day in the top 15 and ended up squeaking out a top seven Uh, go ahead I have to say this about Ricky Stenhouse Bob that speed's been everywhere and it's not expected Mm -hmm. ever but every single time I mean any analytics or any sort of racing that you look at he's always got if you know if the they do the try like the charts and the graphs to where if there would have been complete green flag racing based off time, he's always in the top five, top ten of that. So they really seem to have found something at JTG, Bob. And to piggyback off of that, I was going to mention another name here. I'm glad you actually mentioned that. that's a great segue. Corey LaJoy rolled into P11 there. Again, not a guy that's a road course vet by any stretch of the means there. Obviously, Spire, not you know what you would expect with road course package. Rolling out of P11, that guy is still in the top 16 for playoff points right now. Corey LaJoy has had a sneaky start to the season. you got to give credit to that 7 team for a hot start, getting the most out of their finishes more than anything, even when the speed's not there. And then, obviously, I just want to touch on the forwards here because, like I said, Busher was 8th. Austin Sindrick was the top forward for most of the day here. Really showed some speed. But, Ad, <laughs> the front row motorsports, guys, this is, again, not the first time they've shown, like, that they're good at road course here. Michael McDowell, 12th, Todd Gillen, 10th, but McDowell was in the top eight for a lot of the third stage. 
Todd Gillen, top five at the Indy Road Course last year. I know, uh, you know, they've, impressive by the uh, by the two front row team, the two front row cars. No, they've certainly found something, Bob, because I think this starts back, you know, last year at Indy and then into Watkins Glen. Michael McDowell had a heck of a performance in the rain there through the first two stages, wasn't able to hang on. But obviously, they're starting to get results at more and more of these road courses. And it seems as if if you were going to survive as some of the as one of the smaller teams in NASCAR, it it seems as if you're going to be doing it at road courses and super speedways. And, you know, you have to just hope you can kind of get a few things to go your way. And obviously, with them eliminating the stages at, at road courses, makes it a little bit more predictable for you. So that way, you know, if you produce a good car for one race and it's at the road course with those stage breaks, you've got a chance. And, you know, I think that's what keeps these smaller teams, you know, your JTGs, your your Spire Motorsports, your, you know, even, um, gosh, I can't think of their name. It's College Racing. That's who. Because A.J. Allmendinger obviously kind of has a tough little break at the end there, but that's a guy every single time we go to a road course, these smaller teams have a chance, and they just seem to be getting better and better with the packages they're putting forward. Well, absolutely. It's it's impressive to see some of these teams start to make, you know, strides in the road course package that, you know, historically NASCAR has been the haves and the have-nots, especially when it comes to road courses. You know, the super speedways were kind of the equal playing field. But now you see teams like RFK, like Spire, like even Legacy Motor Club had, you know, Gragson and Jones running decent speeds today. Obviously, didn't roll out there with the finishing order. They're both inside, outside the top 20 there, but... Uh, you know, it shows that these road courses are kind of more equal than they've ever been. At least you you don't just have three or four guys that come in and they're the favorites. Like, you know, a few years ago, these fields are deep, Adam. And it's impressive to see kind of the evolution that the road course racing has taken in NASCAR because it is such a high percentage of the schedule now. Well, it's so odd, Bob, because I think for so long, I had the question of it's like why are we keep putting more and more road courses on the on the schedule, and you know now that we've gotten rid of the stage breaks stuff like that, and there's more and more guys who seem to have the the talent to drive all of these different road courses. So if this is the type of racing that we're going to see, to where you know, I think today was probably Bob and we could you know you we could kind of debate about this back and forth. This is probably the most respectful race I've seen in at least a few years. I mean, the way that Kyle Busch was able to go ahead and just gave Tyler Reddick some room there, I mean, I don't know. It, it felt like there was a general respect that even Chase Elliott was commenting on in the broadcast that we haven't seen in a really long time. It definitely was not the Indy road course. Um, it definitely didn't have that feel, at least. So uh, maybe we're in the, a step of the right direction here. We didn't have the Watkins Glen two teammates trying to, to knock each other out there. So, hey, maybe NASCAR is maturing. Who knows? I doubt it. But, um, you know, before we get into anything else, Ad, is there anything else that I missed from this race that we you know, we, we want to touch? Is there anything else that we didn't, you know, sweep under the rug here? No, I think, I think honestly, Bob, touched on it all. Good broadcast, good racing, uh, no complaints. We love going to Coda, kind of a, you know, like I think we talked about it a little bit before the race. Not – not anywhere near being a crown jewel race, but definitely a different feel race for whatever that's worth. So a great, a great performance from Kodo. Once again, another fun weekend. I mean, I'll say this much, Bob, how about that truck burnout before we move on? Cause whew, I, let me tell you, Zane Smith, they said, they said, burn it down. He said, all right, I'm going to burn it down. And, um, 
you know, you got to respect a, a, a man that can't even bring his car into victory lane because it's literally on fire. That's uh, that is impressive. Ad. That, that's that's what you want. Let, let them know. You know, let them know. You know, Bob, they say that everything's bigger in Texas. And what Zane Smith showed us that the burnouts are included in that statement, because the way that that car went up in flames, it, it's almost hilarious. It's what makes NASCAR NASCAR, because, hey, we just did what we just created one of a machine that was such a feat of engineering that some of the smartest other other smartest minds in this sport tried to beat us and couldn't. And how are we going to celebrate? We're going to light it on fire and never use it again, because that's what we do. And you know what? There's something beautiful about that, about creating something so awesome, so well-situated for one race that afterwards you just burn it down and start all over again. I, you got to love it's it. The, Ameri- it's the, it's the American dream there, Ad. And I got to tell you, a little birdie told me that that truck on uh, on Saturday afternoon on that, uh, that front stretch on fire, that was a good representation of my co-host in Las Vegas on Friday night. I don't know if that's true. A little birdie told me that. The fine folks of this podcast would like to know how the because we haven't teased this at all. But my co-host was in Vegas this weekend. Did we clean them out? Did we do well? Well, Bob, I, I'm just going to put it this way: all of the uh, casinos on the Strip are still in business. I left. Uh, <sighs> I left Saturday Saturday morning, um, but not Friday evening. I, I did my darndest. Um, they they took me they took me pretty bad early in the evening. So much so that I decided to meet my meet a couple of my friends at the Vanderpump Rules Bar. Um, shout out to Molly, who I know is listening to this. But uh, it turns out, Bob, that there are two Vanderpump Rule Bars in Las Vegas, and I chose the wrong one to attend. So I get there, walking through this place like an idiot. Not to mention, I'm wearing a Carhartt jacket and like Ruka shorts. So I look out of place because there are people in this bar. Bob, that are dressed like, we're talking skinny jeans that are so skinny that, like, you can see the outline of dick and balls. So that's a little insane. And then you've got the fucking deep V somehow, like, Hawaiian Versace shirt that is just like, dude, like, what is going on here? So I I looked terribly wrong. I looked like I was about to be someone's bear, so got out of there very quickly. Luckily, met them at Cosmo. You looked like you had a NASCAR podcast in that room. Well, I was wearing a Dale Earnhardt shirt. I walked into a Vanderpump <laughs> Rules bar in a Dale Earnhardt shirt, Bob. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's a dead giveaway right there. Fish, dude, fish out of water. Dude, the host looked at me and there. He literally, like, gave me a look that told me I was too straight to be in that bar. So I was like, oh, all right. It must be in the wrong place. So anyway, walked right Jeff out. Jeff Gordon fans are friends. only in here. So my friend decides, okay, hey, we're staying at the Cosmopolitan. Meet me over there. So then I get my picture taken in a giant high heel shoe, which was hilarious. We'll have to post that on the Instagram. Give that, give that for the fellas. But I ended up in a giant high heel shoe. One thing led to another. Drinking, hanging out. We go to the Taco Bell Cantina because at that point you need, you need something to refuel. <laughs> That's roughly about three in the morning. I, I ended up singing My Country Tis of Thee in, in a Taco Bell Cantina, so that was a good time. Um, and like I said, Vegas had hit me pretty hard early in the night. So hard, in fact, that at four in the morning I said, you know what, one last ride, just like Vin Diesel. And I sat myself down alone at a bubble craft machine. And I said, you know what, we'll see. And somehow, some way, 
As Kenny Rogers said, the gambler, he broke even. And Adam O'Shea broke even and went upstairs in roughly 30 minutes and got about two hours of sleep. Went back down, did it all over again in the morning and left Vegas. Four-hour ride back home and here we are, Bob. Luckily, my fiancé saw the Taylor Swift concert. There was a lot of good people watching in Las Vegas this week, Bob. And let's just say I was, a, I was both a part of it as someone who was spectating and was contributing to the people watching, to say the least. Honestly, the fiancé getting to watch Taylor Swift live, you coming out of Vegas even, that's a happy car ride home as far as I'm considered. That's, that's a pretty so, good win. So uh, my friend Marissa, who I met in law school and has become a really good friend, was the one who kind of brought this trip on. She messaged Anna and I and we're like, hey, let's go to Las Vegas. And she said it perfectly. She said, I got you guys this as a wedding gift or like this, I tri- the idea of this trip is a wedding gift. Anna, it's for you because you get to go see Taylor Swift. Adam, it's for you because you don't have to deal with Anna for an evening. And at that point, I felt like that's an appropriate wedding gift. So thank you, Marissa. That was a very nice weekend. We appreciate it. That is called marriage, folks. That is what we, we're not going to promise a lot of marriage advice here, breaking balls. But every once in a while, we'll throw a nugget in there for free for the audience. So I'm it's glad that I still have a co-host after, after Las Vegas. You know, that city is uh, notorious for, for taking souls, so I'm glad that I still have uh, a partner in crime because, Ad, I can't, I can't talk for 45 minutes straight. I get, I get too winded after a minute, so I'm uh, glad to see you're still here, buddy. The Bob Perry solo podcast would be something to behold, though, just for the record. I don't know when we're going to have to I wager. can't do it. We may have to wager and make one of us do a solo podcast at some point because I think that would just be <laughs> the content. I, I can't even imagine what either one of us solo would be. I cannot imagine. Like the best part oh is, God. is that I would literally. I, I don't. Oh gosh! If I was left to my own devices, I don't think I could publish it. Well, the the problem is just... that if, if if one of if one of us does a solo episode and the views skyrocket, I mean, it's just you know, breaking balls is just shattered balls at this point. Oh <laughs> it's, no! We it's broken. So it's screwed. broken balls. It's broken it's up. So balls. broken. Oh no. Well, it's broken off the have, pre-dump episode. I don't know about you. I have no plans of, of going rogue and doing a solo pod. So please come back on a, on Thursday or Sunday whenever we record next. It's Richmond week, technically a short track. So, you know, God, I hope that the, the short track package is better this year than it was last year with NASCAR. But fingers crossed. I mean, is there anything else that uh, you want to talk about real quick before we call this one a, a wrap? 50 episodes, my friend. We did it. Nope. Nope, Bob. We did it. Uh, 50 minutes here for 50 episodes. You know, I'll let you have the last word on this one, Bob. What, what do you think? What do you think it was that got us to 50 episodes? Grit. Amen, pal. We're a gritty podcast. We always will be. Please be a friend. Share this with a friend. We love you. Talk to you later. Balls.